Hey everybody, WC Turk from Playtime here. This is exciting. Coming up in April, my fourth novel will be published in ebook, audiobook, and print versions. This is an exclusive excerpt from the upcoming novel published by Renegade Press LLC in Appleton, Wisconsin The Assassination of Baby Hitler, a Love Story, Book One of the Accidental Time Traveler series. In this piece, Darby explores Munich, Germany, circa 1891, and meets Greta's friend, the artist Josef Bloch, who pioneered the Munich Secession Arts Movement and the Naturalist Art Movement. Gasthof, or Gasthof Schumacher, was situated in the Schwabing district of Munich. The district was uniquely situated, bounded on the east by Ludwigstrasse, the Englischer Garden, and the University. The streets were rather like angular radial and framed threads of a spider web, or the chronically interrupted mind of an artist eternally battling chaos and order. To the south were the royal palaces and the centers of commerce and the working-class factory districts to the north and the west. All those influences, as well as the critiques of them, flowed through the Schwabing district like competing and sometimes raging rivers. Schwabing was arguably the center of Germany's artistic universe, at a time when Europe was flourishing artistically, struggling to negotiate terms between classical and Victorian sedation and establishment against the social angst and industrial cynicism of the emerging modern, like two great intellectual armies set to clash. It was the art of the exalted against the assertions of the great unwashed. Those battlefields were joined upon canvas with weapons of pastel, oil, and ink, or rendered in stone, bronze, and clay, as much as with fists and batons in the streets. 1891 was not a year of any great tumult. There were no global wars or catastrophes, save for those smarting under the yoke of colonialism, or those beneficiaries to the collapsing Ottoman yoke. There were no pivotal events that altered the course of history, but history was building to something. History was always building to something, like waves upon the sea, and the history of mankind was to exhaust itself amid the tumultuous and catastrophic waves of its own making only to drift complacent upon the gentler waves between. Darby had arrived at a Munich undergoing stunning and revolutionary changes, which set the stage for all that would occur for the next century or more. In just 40 years, half a lifetime, the population had swelled from 100,000 to more than 400,000. More arrived each day, an average of nearly 300 people daily. There were immigrants, refugees, artists, workmen, entrepreneurs, students, and more. There were troublemakers, rabble-rousers, and revolutionaries as well. The line between any of them was not always clear. Some came to forge a better world, some to create a better world for themselves, others to prey on the predictable refuse. We are for the people, every faction proclaimed. But it was those who were for select groups of people that were the most dangerous. 
They played every card from patriotism to despotism. They inflated and railed over the crimes of the other and ignored or rationalized their own crimes. They proclaimed themselves for the nation. They proclaimed themselves for the founders of the nation and built mythologies and falsehoods into legends to justify most anything. They crafted words and raised emotion to confuse and blind and divide, then blamed the minorities they attacked for being divisive and thuggish. The tension stoked crime and unrest and parceled Munich into factions and left families feeling besieged and alone in a city that no longer resembled the old one. It mattered little that it was a terribly skewed perspective, and that with some effort, there was more than enough accommodation for everyone. That truer perspective, however, was shouted down in the din of antagonistic voices and increasingly acrimonious politics. The press, animated by sensationalism, fed the growing flames until alone and afraid the average Munchener gravitated towards those who promised the greatest degree of safety and security. Darby, for better or for worse, and for the moment, was insulated from that darker perspective. Munich, at least this Munich, was new and undiscovered for him. Moreover, any moment spent with Greta was more valuable than anything he could imagine. For the moment, she was his Munich. Greta had packed a basket for their picnic, with a bottle of sweet Gewürztraminer white wine and a bit of dark bread, a jar of pickles, and pâté she'd made from a bit of leftover trout. Darby thought she was stunning in her long dress and jacket. She carried her mother's black and white lace silk parasol, twirling it on her shoulder as if she had just stepped from a Surat or a Gustave Calbois painting, or as though he'd stepped into one. You are a vision, he gushed. And you, sir, handing him the basket and blanket, are, how do you Americans say, a gal sneaker. A what? You know, one who, shall we say, is good for the ladies. You must have me confused with somebody else. I think not. It was a glorious and warm, bright Sunday afternoon. The sky was an unbroken field of azure blue. The streets were busy with wagons and horses, throwing up a racket. The sidewalks were crowded. It seemed as if all Munich was out, many of them appearing to have the same intention of picnicking in the English garden, just as Darby and Greta. For now, the other darker Munich was nowhere to be found. She had found an old suit left by a former boarder and lent it to Darby to replace the clothes she had found him in. Though it was a bit short in the legs and arms, Darby was happy to blend in a bit save for his red and blue and white bowling shoes. That blending went just so far. It was the way he walked and carried himself that separated him from contemporary young men. Even the lowly sidewalk vendors, street sweepers, and young men comported themselves with a certain refinement and reservation compared to Darby. He walked, chided by Greta, like he had something terrible sticking to the front of each shoe, as if he was attempting to flick it away at every step. You walk like one of your cowboys, she told him. Like you own the whole street. Is that how everyone 
Vox in America? Before he could answer, Greta abruptly pulled him in the opposite direction, as if something suddenly occurred to her. In short order, they came to a narrow little apartment flat. What's this? he asked, looking up at the plane, even dingy and moderately kept building. She turned to him, her face painted with excitement. Oh, we must absolutely stop for a visit, she said. You will meet my good friend, Yosef. Even describing the building as modest was stretching credibility. Calling it plain seemed like a front to all things plain and dull. The building, at number 36 of Melienstrasse, was a run-down, shabby gray brick with simple rectangular windows, thick with soot and grime. The wooden door had grayed with age and weather. Near the top of the door, someone had crudely and hastily scratched a Jewish star of David. The letters J and U were scrawled below, where it appeared the would-be artist was interrupted from his masterpiece. Greta touched the door just below the graffiti and felt the need to apologize on behalf of her city. Primitives, was all she said. Darby followed Greta through the heavy wooden door. There was a small, musty foyer that led to a narrow and well-worn set of wooden steps, bleached by years of use. The air reminded Darby of his grandparents' storm cellar at their little farmhouse in rural Iowa. Greta lifted the front of her skirt to climb the steps. The sound of her wood-heeled shoes resounded loudly. He is just on the fourth floor, she said. Please tell me he's going to be home when we get there. Darby was already dreading the thought of climbing more stairs, especially if they discovered that it was all for naught. He works all the time. She took the stairs more easily than Darby. She was used to walking up and down flights of stairs as a matter of course. Darby was quickly longing for an elevator. God, I hope, he muttered under his breath. Darby stopped to rest on the third floor. His thighs burned, and he fought to catch his breath. Seeing him, Greta frowned. Are you really in such terrible shape? I'm a college professor. I'm not used to this. Such a young man, she teased. Already with one foot in the grave. Darby pushed himself forward, meeting her at the bottom of the stairs. Exactly. Where is that grave? I'd gladly throw the other foot and the rest of me in. Greta could only shake her head as Darby grudgingly climbed the last few steps. She was still facing him when, to Darby's great relief, he noticed the passing of an errant shadow in the gap at the bottom of the door. Greta turned and politely wrapped the end of her parasol against the door. A moment later, it opened, revealing a tall, slender, dark-haired, and stunningly handsome man with a long, tapered mustache. Yosef Bloch's eyes were a haunting shade of blue, unlike anything Darby had ever seen before. He found them intense and almost damaged, lingering with him even after Herr Bloch had turned away. More than that, those eyes seemed to sort of funnel to the world, taking in a broad spectrum from the mundane to the emotional, and cataloging every subtlety and detail in between. Quickly recognizing that Darby was entirely out of his element, Block returned a reassuring and gentle smile. As for attire, 
if remaining inconspicuous and inoffensive was the style of the day, Joseph Bloch carried that mandate to the extreme in exquisitely perfect banality. He wore simple brown wool trousers, held up by black suspenders, which stretched over a broad white shirt with great puffy French sleeves. The shirt was hopelessly stained with splotches of paint and splatters of ink. Draped and neatly folded over the back of a chair was a clean gray smock. Greta, wunderbar zu sehen Sie. Wonderful to see you, he exclaimed. Bluck threw his arms out and brought them together at her hand, which he lifted to kiss in gentlemanly fashion. Und dir also, Herr Bloch, Greta said with a curtsy. Bloch? Joseph Bloch? Darby said, surprised. He unwittingly used the hard J sound. Yeah? Forgive me, do you speak English? I can translate, Greta offered. It's okay. I speak a little, Bloch replied. Forgive my terrible German, but I was a fan of your work when I was in university some years ago. They know of me in America, Bloch replied. Darby suddenly realized that much, if not most, of what he knew of Josef Bloch still had not happened yet. They were roughly the same age as well, so years ago would have had Herr Bloch famous even before starting school. Darby, of course, knew well the fate which would befall Josef Bloch after the Nazis came to power, but that was still almost 30 years away. For Darby that made the optimistic and smiling young man before him even more tragic. I particularly like your use of negative space. I'm a big fan of the naturalist art, he said realizing And that's an excerpt from my upcoming novel, The Assassination of Baby Hitler, A Love Story. Look for more excerpts coming up from the novel and the Accidental Time Traveler series. Music you heard in this episode was by Richer de Filier Marsh, a well-known military march from the 19th century composed by Adolf Scherzer in Ingolstadt in 1850, courtesy of Merlin CNR Entertainment on behalf of Westside, and Versol das Bezalen, from 1949 by Jupe Schmitz, courtesy Paradise Entertainment Music, UMG, on behalf of Polydor. And that'll do it for this episode of Playtime. I'm your host, W.C. Solide und brav mit meiner Gattin zu Haus. 
Plötzlich da zog meine Gattin sich aus, wollte mich mit neuem ergötzen. Was denn, so dachte ich, das kennst du doch längst. Doch was dann kam, das war neu. Wäsche und Strümpfe und Schuhe dabei, da rief ich voller Entsetzen. Wer soll das bezahlen? Wer hat das bestellt? 